Well, again, I'm so excited that you're here with us today. If you're a guest or if it's your first time back with us in a long time, we are thrilled that you've decided to uh, spend some of your weekend with us. Uh, I don't know about you, but last weekend celebrating Easter on our campus was just awesome. Uh, I loved how uh, God moved and, and how so many of you... <clears throat> I just want to thank those of you who invited friends and family members and you served in one of our six services on Easter weekend. Thousands of people, because of you, not only heard about God's love, but they experienced it when they came on our campus for the very first time. And so it doesn't go without saying that uh, we, we love you, we appreciate you, and it is such an honor and privilege to uh, serve alongside you and what God is doing in this place. Now, I've told you before that uh, I grew up, I was born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I never had two different childhood homes. I always lived in the same exact place. My parents lived in the same house for nearly three decades, all right? And so when I think of my childhood home, I think of 1400 Walnut Lane, and I love that house. It was built in 1894 by a man named James Thompson. He built it for his bride from Ireland, and to this day, it sits on top of a hill between the corner of Owl Creek and Walnut Lane. I love that house because of so many memories that I have from the past. And and if I were to take you there, if we were to take the two-hour drive over to Anchorage, Kentucky, a little suburb in Louisville on Walnut Lane, I, I would show you different rooms in different places that were significant to me from the past. I would probably take you to one of my bedrooms, all right? There was a fireplace right in the middle of it. It was rather unique. And, and growing up, we never had air conditioning on the second floor. And so I can just remember many nights laying in a pool of sweat in the middle of summer, trying to fall asleep with this fan blowing in my face and the windows were open. And, and that's, that kind of describes my childhood a little bit. I'd probably take you downstairs to our dining room and in the corner of the dining room, there was another little fireplace that was really significant. Whenever anybody from our neighborhood would come over, they would always ask to see this fireplace, and here's why. Legend had it in our community that there was a secret passageway somewhere behind this fireplace. And so I can't tell you how many hours we spent looking for some knob to push or some uh, bu button or, or something to shift so that the fireplace would turn around and all of a sudden there would be this tunnel. We never found it. Looking back, that was probably just my parents' way of trying to distract me and keep me focused on something, you know. <laughs> now, some of my better memories took place outside. I could show you where I learned to play basketball, but far, uh, I have far more memories around the area that my dad put in a swimming pool in the summer of 1993. I've just had so many good times around that pool. Uh, one time, uh, our high school ministry at the church where I grew up for an entire summer, every Sunday night, would come over and our youth pastor, Jim, would stand on top of the diving board and he would teach the Bible while all the students were crowded around the pool with their legs in the water. And then as it got dark at night, a volunteer would roll a big screen over to the edge of the pool and we would have a dive in and we would watch Jaws or, you know, something, some creepy movie like that as we were swimming and had a lot of good times around the swimming pool. I, I could take you back to the barn where I uh, kept my two bunnies, Peter and Joshua. And yes, I do love rabbits. I've had that question a lot this past week, all right? <laughs> now, you can understand naming your rabbit Peter, but I look back and think, what was I thinking naming my rabbit Joshua? That'd be like you naming your dog Steve or Debbie, you know what I mean? It just doesn't fit, right? Now, I have a lot of good memories from there. And 
When Savannah and I moved to Dallas, my parents eventually sold 1400 Walnut Lane, and I couldn't help but be a little bit sad whenever they sold it and the new owners came and they moved all their stuff out. I didn't see our house for several years, all right? So one afternoon, we were in town, I had some time to kill, and so I decided to go check out my old home. And, and so I drove really slowly when I pulled onto Walnut Lane, and I just tried soaking in all the former familiar sights. And, and as I drove by our house, I, I went even slower, just looking at all that had changed. And I would make a U-turn and then drive back by it. I did that about four or five times until I eventually got the courage up to actually pull in the driveway to see the swimming pool. But to my dismay, to my surprise, they had filled the swimming pool in with dirt <laughs> and they had painted the house white as a different color they had removed a lot of trees and bushes that had been there and they put this fence up around the entire property that that we hadn't put up when we lived there and there were just a lot of things that, that were different about it now, I couldn't help but, but drive away that day feeling a little bit sad not only because of all the changes but there was this subtle reminder that this place where I used to call home now felt very foreign and, and unfamiliar to me. It's like I didn't belong there. I mean that fence that was around our property only reinforced the idea that I wasn't welcome there anymore. I mean that place is not my home anymore. It's just a, a physical building where a lot of memories from my past took place and nothing more than that. Again, I, I felt like I, it's just not my place. I don't belong there. I, don't, I just don't fit in. Let me ask you something. Do you, do you ever feel like that sometimes in life? Do you ever feel like in this world, you just you don't belong here anymore. It's no longer home. It used to be comfortable, but anymore, it, you just you don't even know what's around you. Things feel so foreign to you. Do, do you ever feel like that? One time, uh, Jesus was talking with some of his closest friends and followers, and, and they were a little bit discouraged because Jesus had just told them that he was going to die and, and he would come back to life, and then he was going to leave them. And, and so they were Faced, they asked a lot of questions. They had a lot of doubts. And so Jesus tried to calm some of their fears by saying, hey, but look, whenever I go away, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you in my father's house. Now come to find out the place that Jesus went to prepare for all of those who believe in him and follow him is referred to as our home. In other words, it's this place that we ultimately belong. It's the place where we are welcomed. It's the place where we were ultimately created to live and dwell forever. And so today we're beginning this series called The Heaven I Never Knew, and we are going to be exploring this home that Jesus talked about in John chapter 14. Now here's what the next five weeks here at Crossroads are going to all be about, okay? Somewhere along the way, we have bought into this lessened, kind of watered-down, weak view of heaven that honestly does anything but excite us and give us joy about spending forever there, right? I mean, when we think about heaven... A lot of us aren't excited about it, and so we try to make the most of this life here and now because eternity, it, what I have in my mind, what I've been told to believe, it just doesn't sound all that appealing, right? That describes how a lot of us approach this topic of heaven today. Now, it's important that we walk through this series in community with one another because we all have questions about the afterlife. And, and so, again, if you're not a part of a small group, I want to encourage you to check out Table Talk for the next four weeks. It's just a, a way for you to test the waters of uh, our small groups, and, and it's just a great way for you to learn together. We're trying to just um, lessen all the barriers and obstacles that, that a lot of us have towards small groups because at times it can be a little bit weird. And, and so if you are wondering what your next step is at 
crossroads and you're not a part of a group, check out Table Talk this coming Tuesday, and uh, I, I promise you that, that you won't regret it. Now, again, we all have questions about what we're going to experience after life in this world, right? And, and there's no shortage of information in our culture about what we will see, what we will hear, and we're all intrigued whenever we hear about some near-death experience that someone had. What did they see? You know, what did they experience? What, what did they feel? And the problem with near-death experiences is that it can be very subjective, and there's no way to really prove that it was true or that prove that it was really happened. You're just kind of taking that person for their word and, and whatever they said. And I mean, how can you say that you had a near-death experience, but then maybe you look back and realize that you were just around your husband who had White Castle the night before? You know what I'm saying? And so one thing that we have to do in this series is we have to stay rooted to God's word because God's word is really the only source of authority that can be trusted when it comes to talking about matters of eternity. And so all of our images and opinions and beliefs about heaven has been formed by movies that we've seen, TV shows that we watch, or books that we read. But again, we have to compare our images with what scripture says. Because here's where a lot of our preconceived notions about heaven has led us. It goes like this. The problem with our view of heaven is that our expectations are too small. The problem with our view of heaven is that our expectations are too small. You see, how we view heaven determines how much we want to be there. And the truth is, a lot of us probably don't want to be there. We fear death because, again, we have this weak, lessened view of what eternity with God in our forever home is going to be like. And so what we're going to do in this series is we are going to look at some of the different pictures and images that we're given throughout the Bible. Now, you can't scientifically prove that heaven exists, all right? Nobody's ever, you know, brought back a rock or said, hey, here's exactly what I heard or brought some piece of evidence, all right? We're a very scientific-driven culture. But what we can do is identify different clues that we experience in life that reveal we were made for something more. We were made for something greater. And so that's what we're going to look at today. If you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn to the uh, Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. All right, it's right in the middle of your Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a black Bible right in front of you. Uh, that's our gift to you. Feel free to take it when you leave here today. And uh, Ecclesiastes can be found in between the books of Proverbs and Song of Songs. All right. Now, as you're turning there, let me just kind of set this up. We're going to pick up right at the beginning of this uh, book in chapter 1. A guy by the name of Solomon wrote this. It was kind of like a journal of life, of life lessons for him. And, and his intention when writing Ecclesiastes was that he would pass it on to younger generations because he wanted to impart some wisdom to them. He, he wanted to spare future generations of the pain that he went through or lessons that he learned the hard way. And so in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he tells us that... God has actually planted eternity into every human heart. We all know at the end of the day that we were made for something more and something greater. And so here's what he says at the very beginning of, of chapter 1. Pick up with me in verse 2. He says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything's meaningless. Do you know what the Hebrew word is here for meaningless? Meaningless. I'm smart. I know. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Solomon asks. Now, this may come across as a very pessimistic, kind of Debbie Downer approach, but the entire point of this book was to create this sense of expectancy about life to come by stirring up dissatisfaction that we experience in life right now. 
And so verse 3 is where we find our first clue that we were made for something more. He asks this rhetorical question about what we really gain whenever we work hard, whenever we focus on something. In other words, how much do trophies, diplomas, titles, awards, accomplishments, or achievements really matter when we die? I mean, if we devote so much time and energy to that in this life, it's a question worth asking, right? And so the first, first clue that we can identify in our text goes like this, that everybody wants to be somebody, right? Everybody wants to be somebody. Now, we're created to make a difference and to live uh, for a purpose. Everybody wants to be respected and loved. Nobody wants to just kind of fit in and, and not be approved or accepted by those around us. We all want to be noticed. We all want to contribute. We all want to have a significant life. We all want to matter. The very first book in the Bible is called Genesis, and it describes the moment whenever God first created humanity. I want you to pick up on what we're told at the very beginning. It says this, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then, check this out, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and Rain over the fish and the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Now, I want you to notice how the second God created us as people, that he not only blessed our first parents, Adam and Eve, but he assigned them a purpose. He gave them a job description. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and, and govern it. In other words, rule over it. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were told to partner with the creator in reigning over a portion of his kingdom. Now, the most common word used to describe in the Hebrew language about what Adam and Eve experienced at this point in time and in the state of the world at this time goes back to this word shalom. All right, just say it out loud with me. It's really fun to say. Shalom, shalom. yeah. Shalom expresses complete perfection, harmony, wholeness. Now, before sin, Adam and Eve had shalom with God. They were united with the Lord. But then all of a sudden, Adam and Eve started believing that they didn't measure up, they weren't good enough, and so they had this midlife crisis moment where they wondered, why should I reflect God when I can actually be a God? But they got ripped off. You see, the thing that promised them freedom only ended up holding them hostage. You see, the moment they disobeyed God was the moment that they exchanged true significance for a cheap counterfeit version. And the reality is we have been searching for worth and value in all the wrong places ever since then. And that describes a lot of our stories, right? And so thousands of years after Adam and Eve messed things up, Jesus showed up on the scene to fix everything. One of the first things that Jesus did when calling different guys to follow after him and believe him, he said it like this in Matthew chapter 4. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What does that mean? Well, after Jesus said this, he went on to heal the sick, raise the dead. He calls the deaf to hear, and he did other cool miracles. This was Jesus' way of inviting all those who believe in him to join him in restoring the world that we messed up. You see, our purpose in life is to bring heaven to earth. I think our society is so obsessed with reality television because we love seeing average people become significant and become popular in our society, right? In a way, we sit behind our screens thinking, man, if that person can make a difference, if he or she can be famous, then maybe I have significance in life too. Maybe there's hope for me. But the problem, but the problem is that we have equated significance with being a celebrity. 
We define value by how many followers, likes, shares, or retweets we get. We've reduced our worth down to the amount of approval or acceptance we have in our peer group. But the reality is we've only enslaved ourselves. You see, since the beginning, our creator has told us this, that our identity is not about what we do, but it's all about what God has already done. And for 50 years, that's what Crossroads Christian Church has been about. Our existence has centered upon this idea that it is our job to tell that to as many people in the quickest way possible in the shortest amount of time. To tell people that, that you are so valuable, that you, are so, that you are so worthy in the eyes of God, that he willingly gave the Son of God for you so that you could live in this forever home. That, that's what Crossroads is about. And so for the next five years, we envision that, that God is calling us to not just have a Newburgh campus, but to start campuses all across the tri-state region so that people don't get the message that, hey, you've got to come to us in order to hear this, in order to hear this truth. No, we're saying we're going to go to you. We're, we're taking it that seriously. That's why we're so excited that our West Campus, Crossroads West, is going to launch on the weekend of September 10th of this year. We're getting significant traction. It is cool to see how God is moving in that part of, of, our, uh, of our community. Now, you should know that uh, uh, at the beginning of 2015, up until the beginning of this year, we were on a two-year financial journey called All In. And, and I just want to thank you because of your generosity, it's really laid the foundation for this vision. In other words, it's gotten us to this place where we are now where these dreams aren't just dreams, but they can become reality. They can come to full fruition. And, and so not only thank you for that, all right, but there's more to do. There's more to come in the future. As our vision continues to unfold, we will continue to have more and more needs. Two weeks ago, I talked about how uh, on the weekend of May 13th and 14th, what we're going to do is we're going to take the entire offering on that weekend, and we're going to put it towards renovation costs on our West Campus facility. Now, any money that goes above and beyond that will also be put as kind of seed money for future campuses uh, across the tri-state region. And so I just want to throw that date out there to ask this question. What small sacrifices can all of us be making now so that on the weekend of May 13th and 14th, we can give a significant gift so that God's work can continue in our community? We all want to have significance. We all want to have a purpose, right? And God says, look, jo join me in what I'm doing. He, he, here's, here's what it's about. Check out verse 4 in our text. Solomon says, generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, they, there they return again. And so Solomon went from talking about accomplishments in life how they're pointless, to then describing the different cycles we can all observe in nature. Now this contrast, he, he makes this contrast, it illustrates the consistency of creation with how our life just seems to be in a constant motion of change and evolution, right? And so the second clue that we were made for something more and greater goes like this, that things aren't like they used to be, all right? Things aren't like they used to be. For some of us, this is the good thing, Okay. Maturity is about growth, and, and growth doesn't happen without change. Do you ever look back at old pictures or videos of yourself and think to yourself, what in the world was I thinking? Why did I ever think that that, that was a good idea? You know what I'm saying? We've all had those moments. I think part of the pain that we experience in this life is the reality that life doesn't come with a rewind button. And so it begs the question, what if we weren't created to experience regret? 
Solomon describes this idea in greater detail later on in chapter 12 when challenging the younger generation to make the most of the moment by living for God. And so to make his point, to illustrate his point, he he tells young people that it's only a matter of time until your body begins to age and and wear out. Check out verse 2 in uh, Ecclesiastes 12. He said, remember him before the light of the sun, moon, and stars is dim to your old eyes and rain clouds continually darken your sky. What's he talking about here? Well, he Describes how the older we are, the less we can see out of our eyes. Aging bodies develop cataracts and our vision becomes blurrier with time. You know what I'm saying? Check out verse 3. He says, remember your legs, the guards of your house start to tremble. And before your shoulders, the strong men stoop. Remember him before your teeth, your few remaining servants stop grinding. Now, as we age, our, our teeth wear out and become dull, Right? I recently heard about an elderly man and woman in their 90s who met at the retirement home, the local retirement home, and they started dating, and and they just fell in love with one another, and they eventually got engaged. Well, this surprised everybody at the retirement home. Well, one day they got in their car, and they drove to a Walgreens, and they just slowly walked into the Walgreens, made their way back to the pharmacist, got to the pharmacist counter. The old man pulled out a note from his pocket, and he began asking the pharmacist a bunch of different questions. He, He said, do you guys sell ace bandages here? pharmacist said, yeah, yeah, we do. He said, good. Do you you have blood pressure medicine? Well, yeah, we're we're a pharmacist. He said, do you sell denture cream, hemorrhoid cream, hearing aids, hearing aid batteries, walkers? Do you sell uh, really big soles for my feet so that I can walk around? And and the pharmacist said, yeah, we have all that. Why do you keep asking me this? The old man said, well, my fiance and I here just got engaged and we're trying to find a place where we can register for all of our wedding gifts. Come on, that's funny, right? (laughs) Skip to verse 4. Look at what Solomon continues to write. He said, remember him before the door to life's opportunities is closed and the sound of work fades. Now you rise at the first chirping of the birds, but then all of their sounds will grow faint. One of the more obvious signs that we are getting older is that we can't hear as well as we used to, right? Any wives out there believe that your husband needs a hearing aid? Yeah, my, my wife says that I do. Apparently, she told me that. I really wasn't listening. All right. Look at verse 5. Remember him before you become fearful of falling and worry about danger in the streets. The older you get, the less risk you want to take. Before your hair turns white like an almond tree in bloom and you drag along without energy like a dying grasshopper. And the caperberry no longer inspires sexual desire. Now, believe it or not, but sex becomes less and less frequent the older that you get. At least that's what I've been told, all right? (laughs) Now, capers in the ancient world were an aphrodisiac. And and Solomon's point here was, look, it it can only stimulate so much drive in in a weak body. Notice that earlier in this verse, Solomon says that hair changes colors and it begins to grow in weird places. You know what I'm saying? Last night before service, Daryl told me that I needed hair implants. This will be Daryl's last weekend with us, all right? This all sounds rather depressing, but I want you to notice the very next line. Solomon says, remember him before you near the grave, your everlasting home, when the mourners will weep at your funeral. And so while our bodies get weaker with time in a way, it only increases our desire to finally arrive at a place where there's no such thing as as aging. The more we age, the more we realize how short life is and that we were made for something better. We were made for something more. 
One time after uh, I got done talking on, on heaven, teaching on heaven at my former church down in Dallas, I had this elderly lady come up to me, and, and she was complimentary, and she said, you know, uh, I, I just feel so lonely. I have more friends up in heaven than I do here right now, and I started to feel bad for, me, for her, and she stopped me. She said, don't feel bad for me. She said, I just hope I die soon so that all my friends up there will think that I made it. <laughs> Let me ask you something, though. Do you really believe that the best is yet to come? Do you really believe that you were made for something greater, for something more? Let me talk to those of you for just a minute who are elderly and are of an older generation, all right? Now, obviously, I don't know what it's like to have gone through life in the way that you have and to have experienced the amount of change over several decades that you have. But one thing that I hear most frequently from your generation is that you wonder, do I still have a purpose? Can I still contribute? You wondered, are my best days behind me? And that's what leaves you so lonely and hopeless at times, right? I hear that a lot. Now, regardless of your age, regardless of how failing your body is at times and how disconnected you may feel from our culture or those of us who are younger, I want you to know that we need you. We need you. Our church needs you. Our community needs you. Our country needs you. Now, you may not feel it. You may not know it. But chances are you've got a lot of wisdom. You've got a lot of life experiences that you can share with those of us who are younger. And so you wonder, can I still contribute? And you're you're maybe tempted to check yourself out of the game and to quit running. But I'm telling you, don't. Keep running. Keep heading towards home. Do you know that Jesus' closest friend, John, the most significant contribution that he ever made to the kingdom of God was when he was in his 90s, nearing death during his last chapter of life? It's when he wrote the book of Revelation. And so as you round the bases and as you head towards home, don't quit running. Don't give up. We need you. Now, let me just say, I know that we millennials, we act like we have life figured out. We're smart. We don't need to be told what to do. All right? It's all a lie. We do, all right? And the truth is, if I'm being really honest with you, we act like experts. We act like we know it all. But really, we're just good at searching different things on Google and reading what the most recent expert blogger says about this or that. And that's kind of why we feel like we're, we're a little bit better than everyone else. And, and you see, our increased access to information has led us to be kind of entitled. And so just as we need you to be for us, I want you to know that, that we need to be for you as well. And I want you to know that I am, and we as a church need you. Your best days, your best days can be before you. Here's the next clue that we see. More is never enough. It's tough to resist the illusion that happiness and fulfillment is just one credit card payment away. Skip to verse 8. Solomon says this, All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. Our ability to desire is unlimited. Right after uh, Troy Aikman won his first Super Bowl with the Dallas Cowboys, yes, the Cowboys at one point in time did make it that far in the season. (laughs) He he was asked by the media what he did to celebrate instead of going out with his friends the night that they won the Super Bowl. And and here's what he told the reporter. He went on to tell him that, that he went back to his hotel room to be all by himself. He sat on his bed and he said this, I kept thinking back to when I was a teenager and how I thought that all of life's problems were going to be solved once I turned 16 and got a car. But here I was at the top of professional football and I found myself thinking, now what? Now what? And isn't that a lot of... Isn't that a question that we ask ourselves on a pretty frequent basis? I mean, isn't it true that the thing or the person that you've put your hope in has eventually failed you or it's only left you wanting more? 
You might deny it, maybe you can't see it, but is it possible that the reason you feel like you never have enough is because your hope has been in the wrong place the entire time? Here's the last and most obvious clue that we were created for heaven. It goes like this. Sometimes life feels like living in hell, right? I mean, is there any other way to describe those moments when life just doesn't make sense, when the pain seems insurmountable? Skip down to verse 18 and notice how Solomon describes suffering. He says it like this. For with much wisdom comes sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief, he says. Now, another way to phrase what Solomon writes here is, hey, the more you experience life, the more you see how much pain and evil dominates this planet. And the older you get, the more you realize that a day doesn't go by when you don't notice or encounter grief. Now, I suppose that you could argue that all the hate, darkness, brokenness, and and evil in the world is proof that there is no loving God, let alone a heaven. Maybe that's the reason why you're running from Jesus right now. But let me ask you this. What if the sense that, that something is wrong inside you, that something is broken in this world, reveals that you have an ingrained standard for what's right and whole? Now, here's the thing. If you're certain that life is full of injustice, then by your own admission, you are admitting that there is another place where there is wholeness, where there is peace, where fulfillment can be found. And so every tear that you've ever shed, every lump in your throat, every ounce of sadness, that is your conscience telling you that you were made for something more, that there is a greater place for you, there's a place where you ultimately belong. You see, sometimes the only way that we can get through life that at times feels, feels like we're living in hell is by focusing on heaven, on what's to come for all of us that are in Christ. You know, the one time uh, I felt like I was in this season of life, perhaps maybe the only time was was when I was diagnosed with cancer. And, and before I was diagnosed, we knew that something was wrong. And, and the day before I had my surgical biopsy, I remember lying in the, hotel, uh, the hospital bed. It was dark in the room. It was silent. That was quite a contrast to an hour before when my entire family was up there. And it was pretty loud and everybody was kind of having a good time. People would ask me, you know, how are you doing? How are you holding up? Oh, you know, I'm fine. I'm fine. And really, I was kind of lying because I was a little bit scared. Didn't, again, didn't know what was going on. But, but I was literally stare, staring death in the face at that point in time. And so as I'm lying on that hospital bed, I had one of those conversations with God where I basically told him that I could do his job better than him. I wondered what he was up to, and and things just didn't add up. It didn't make sense. I wondered, am I even going to live long enough to celebrate my first year anniversary with my wife? And so as I laid there, a certain passage came to mind. It's a passage found in the book of Philippians. A guy by the name of Paul wrote it while on death row, sitting in a jail cell. And here's what he said in chapter 1, verse 21. He said, for me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And for one of the first times in my life, I began to understand what that meant. Now, I don't fully understand it to this day, but I can tell you that that was a turning point for me. That's when things started to click. Again, I'm not all the way there yet, but that's when I started to get traction, understanding what it really looks like to keep a focus on on heaven. Now, here's the thing. That next day, I was diagnosed with a rare form of lymphoma. I went through about six months of treatments. Here I am, eight years later, I'm healed. There's a nice bow on the end of this really inspirational story, right? Are you saying, Patrick, that that if I focus on heaven and I maintain this faith that that life's going to work out for me in that way? No, I'm not. Are you saying that that if I can recall passages when my world seems to be crashing down and and that I can have this hope beyond what the world experienced and I'm going to be overcome with this peace, is that the way it's going to work out? Are you just some super Christian, Patrick, that you can do that? I think you can do better. (laughs) 
But you see, God has given us different glimpses throughout Scripture to keep our hope on what's ahead because sometimes life just seems unbearable. And I know many of us, we walk in here today, that's where we're at. Feels like we're living in a hell that we just can't get out of. And so one of the passages that describes this heaven that we can anticipate is, is found in that book of Revelation. God gave John this, this picture of what's to come for all of those who are in Jesus Christ. And his point in doing this was to communicate the vision of what he saw to a bunch of believers who were encountering a lot of grief and suffering at that point in time. It was meant to encourage them to hang on and to keep going. And so I want to read you what John saw that day as he looked into heaven, his forever home. He said, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Maybe just close your eyes and imagine this for a second. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. You see, in heaven there will be no more cancer, no more divorce, no more rejection, no more loneliness, no more depression, no more band-aids, no more tissue boxes, no more crutches, no more wheelchairs, no more pacemakers, no more radiation, chemotherapy, no more school shootings, no more metal detectors, no more x-rays, anxiety medication, no more crosses along the side of the road, no more child abuse, no more rape, no more tornado sirens, no more earthquakes, no more tsunamis, no more acne, no more love handles, no more saddlebags, no more cottage cheese thighs, no more double chins, no more bad breath, no more body odor, amen, right? No more deodorant, no more deodorant stains, no more shaving, no more plucking or waxing, no more Rogaine, no more socks without a match, no more Obamacare, no more yelling, no more fighting, no more racism, no more addiction, no more crash diets, no more spanks, no more skinny jeans. <laughs> no more pretending, no more injustice, no more infertility, no more infidelity, no more inoperable tumors, no more security systems, no more autism, no more bipolar disorder, no more child protective services, no more doctors, no more bill collectors, mechanics, no more dentists, no more lawyers, no more plastic surgeons, no more funeral homes, no more orphanages, no more waiting rooms, animal hospitals, broken homes, no more slums, no more foreclosure notices, no more motionless ultrasounds, no more tiny caskets, no more loneliness, no more crying, no more pain. And if you hear that and you think, man, that just sounds too good to be true. I don't deserve to go there. I'd say you're exactly right. We're unqualified. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to this earth to qualify the unqualified and to pay our debt and to pay our way in so that we could spend forever with him. And so what we're gonna do right now is we're gonna take communion and this is our opportunity to just tangibly remember that. In just a few moments, we're gonna take those two cups that are stacked on top of each other. The bottom cup contains a little piece of bread and on top there's some juice. That bread, it just simply represents the body of Jesus that was crucified. That was the moment he paid our debt. That cup of juice represents his blood that was shed. The Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. In other words, that, that's our ticket into heaven, into eternity with him. And you see, in light of all the darkness and brokenness and death and crying that this world has to offer, rather than running the other way, God actually ran towards it. Why? So that death, crying, mourning, brokenness, it wouldn't end us. The creator God over everything who is sovereign, literally was laid to rest for three days. It looked defeated, it looked like all hope had been lost. But on that Sunday morning, he came back to life proving that he really is who he says he is. And that resurrection that he experienced is something that we will 
all go through one day as well. And so let's remember together because in the meantime, until that happens, we wait and we endure and we keep our focus on what's to come. Let's pray. God, I know a lot of us walk in here and that last point, we saw the words up on the screen. Some of us were a little bit surprised or shocked, but, but we say, yep, that, there's no better way to describe what I'm going through right now. And yet in only a way that you can, God, would you just remind us that you're with us? And it's great that, that we can anticipate what's to come in eternity, but the reality is some of us are so focused on just making it another hour, making it through the afternoon, making it through another day, another week, another month. We're barely hanging on. We're barely holding things together. But God, through your strength and through the refreshment of your spirit, you can help us. And so we acknowledge that we need you. Thank you for Jesus who paid our debt. Jesus, you qualify the unqualified, and that's us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.